reading until verse 14 of the following chapter. Before we read the the passage, I would like to draw your attention to the insert that's in your bulletin. It's a broad outline of chapters 15 through 20, which are are one sustained unit in, in 2 Samuel. Now, I don't normally give you this much detail on specific sections of a book of the Bible, but I am giving you this detail today for two reasons. Number one, this is a little glimpse of the beauty of God's Word. As you can see in the outline there, there is a wonderful symmetry to this section of Samuel. There are six sections, and each section corresponds to and even balances another one. You see it there? It's really delightful. And I hope it encourages you to keep reading the Scriptures for yourself because you never get to the end of all the goodness that there is in the Bible. So that's the first reason I gave it to you because I want you to keep reading the Bible for yourself. The second reason I give it to you is because we're going to follow the pattern of the story rather than the breaks of the chapters over the next several weeks. We're going to follow the pattern of the story rather than the breaks of the chapters. Again, if you look at the outline there, you can see that almost every section crosses a chapter break. Chapters and verses were put in later by editors, right? And I think these chapter breaks are probably not where they need to be. So you could certainly focus on individual chapters, and that would be a faithful way to study the Bible. But I think it's more helpful at this point to follow the plot of the story, to follow the plot of the narrative. So In that sense, I hope this outline will be like a road map for you over the next several weeks. You can tuck it away inside your Bible and then use it to remind yourself of where we are in the story of David's kingdom. So for today, we're considering Absalom's rebellion and David's flight from Jerusalem. We've already read verses 1 to 17, so we're going to pick it up with David on the run in verse 18. Please follow along with me. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 18 of 2 Samuel 15. And all David's servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites and all the Pelethites and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, whatever my Lord the king, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all of his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, "'Carry the ark of God back into the city.'" If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, He will bring me back and let me see both it and His dwelling place. But if He says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let Him do to me what seems good to Him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? 
Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz your son and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are there with them, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing two hundred loaves of bread and a hundred bunches of raisins and a hundred of summer fruits and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. When David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David. And all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left hand. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, evil is on you. your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood." Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now this Benjaminite? Leave him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him to do so. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And there he refreshed himself. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Let's pray. 
Father, we do ask now that You would give us grace to hear the Scriptures as we ought with humble hearts that are ready to believe, humble hearts that are ready to be corrected and convicted, humble hearts, Father, that are ready to think more of others than we think of ourselves. Father, please give us grace that we might understand what You have revealed in the Scriptures and that it might lead us to Christ and faith in His name. Lord, please help me today to speak things that are faithful and true and accurate. Please give Your people discernment. Remind us, Father, that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Remind us that these are Your words. And therefore, Father, they are for our good so that we might live. Give us grace now, God, we ask. In Jesus' name, Amen. The great Puritan prayer book, The Valley of Vision, begins with these words. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, You have brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see You in the heights. Those opening words capture the heart of those Puritan prayers. In His wisdom, God often ordains to take His children deep into the valley in order to restore their sight of who He is. That was the testimony of the Puritans. And I know that it's the testimony of many people here today. For many of us, our deepest insights into the things of God have not come on the heights of triumph, but instead in the valleys of hardship. Perhaps it was an illness that taught you afresh how frail you are but how mighty and merciful God promises to be. Maybe it was a job loss or some other financial distress that trained your heart to say that God is enough and that His goodness never fails. Or perhaps it was some dark night of the soul that caused you to cherish in some deeper way the presence and nearness of God. Those kinds of lessons can only be learned in the valley. You don't learn them on the mountaintop. You can only learn them in the valley. And many of us know that full well. God often brings us downward into the valley where we live in these things called the depths in order that we might see Him again in the heights. In many ways, friends, that truth that we know from experience is also the central theme of King David's life at this point. That old Puritan prayer could just as easily have been written in response to what we find here in 2 Samuel 15. Our passage today describes David's descent into what can only be called the most difficult valley of his life. Absalom, his own son, rises up against his father. Many of you have sons. Imagine your son, your little boy, picking up the sword against you. David's own son rises up against him, and he has one intention, to kill his father. And so David, the king, David, the Lord's anointed, David, the one through whom the Messiah will come, faces a situation so bleak that he has to run for his life. And quite literally, David's flight takes him down into the valley. He leaves Jerusalem, which is on the mountaintop, and he flees all the way to the Jordan River, which is 3,500 feet down from Jerusalem to the Jordan. It was a 21-mile dash straight down into the valley, both 
literally and figuratively. David runs for his life. God drives him into the valley. And yet something incredible happens as David flees for his life. For the first time in several chapters, we see clear evidence of David's faith in the Lord. It's striking, really. Far from driving David to despair, Absalom's rebellion seems to bring David to his senses. This is the key to the whole passage, friends. David runs from Absalom, but he doesn't run in fear. He runs in faith. Trusting that God will do what is right. You can read Psalm 3 to hear more of David's faith in this hour of need. He doesn't run in fear. He runs in faith. Trusting God will do what is right. What a remarkable encouragement we'll find here today, friends. It really is remarkable in my mind. David goes into the valley, but amazingly, the Lord goes there with him. And so, let's go there now. Let's follow David on his road out of Jerusalem and quite literally down into the valley 3,500 feet below. There will be three clear steps in David's flight. But in order to follow those steps, we must begin not with David the king, but with Absalom the traitor. His part comes in verses 1-12. to And as bad as Absalom is, it's through him that we see the truthfulness of God's Word confirmed. The truthfulness of God's Word confirmed. Say what you will about Absalom, but the man knows how to patiently carry out a plan. For two years, he plotted to kill his own brother. And now here in chapter 15, he takes four years to overthrow his father. Think about that. Six years of his life spent plotting vengeance. Sin will waste your life, friends. Six years of his life gone. Absalom's treason is deliberate and effective. Notice how it unfolds with this ruthless precision. To begin with, Absalom questions the king's commitment. Look where Absalom plants himself, verse 2, beside the way of the gate. The gate is like the county courthouse. It's where you go to get a ruling from the king. But what does Absalom do day after day in the gate? He stirs up discontent. Notice verse 3. See, your claims are good, friend, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. It's all the king's fault, Absalom says. You can't get justice because the king is falling down on the job. You see, week after week, year after year, Absalom spreads his poison. He questions the king's commitment. But then Absalom goes on to usurp the king's position. It just so happens that Absalom knows a solution to Israel's problem. And surprisingly, the solution is himself. Notice verse 4. Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. Don't get thrown off by that language of judge. It was the king's job to judge. So when Absalom says, oh, that I were the judge, he's really saying, oh, that I were the king. Oh, that I were the king. You see, it's not innocent, friends. This is an outright claim that Absalom should be king over his father. He usurps the king's position. He keeps going. And next, he deceives the king's people. Notice verse 5. Absalom doesn't allow people to bow down before him. Instead, he quickly embraces them with a firm handshake and a friendly sign of affection. Why is that important? 
Because it shows that Absalom is not like that stiff suit David that just sits in the palace. No, Absalom's out in the community, among the regular people, mingling with all of us working class schlubs. You see, he's smooth, right? He's smooth. He's deceptive. And in the end, he's effective. Notice the end of verse 6. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. That phrase, stole the hearts, carries the idea of being tricked or being fooled. It's the same phrase that was used to describe what Jacob did to his father-in-law Laban. He tricked him. That's what Absalom has done. He's deceived the king's people. So the kingdom is ripe for the taking, and that's what Absalom does beginning in verse 7. He takes the king's place. Absalom asks David for permission to go to Hebron. That should be a major red flag. Remember, Hebron is the chief city of Judah, and it's also the place where David was first crowned to be king. So if you wanted a symbolic place to launch your your coup, Hebron would be the ideal spot. After securing David's permission, Absalom doesn't waste any time. He sends out his cronies, and then with a trumpet blast and a sacrifice, Absalom declares himself to be king. It's a terrifying sight. Absalom stands in David's city with David's counselor performing David's role of overseeing the royal sacrifices. He has raised his hand against the Lord's anointed and it seems like he's going to win. Through his deliberate plan, Absalom takes the king's place. So what are we to make of this? Is there anything we should take away from this fascinating piece of Israel's history? Well, yes, but the takeaway is perhaps not what you might first expect. As we watch Absalom steal his father's throne, we should be thinking to ourselves, God keeps His Word no matter the consequences. God keeps His Word no matter the consequences. You see, this is where you've got to think about Absalom's rebellion from two different perspectives. The human perspective and the divine. From the human perspective, this is a wicked act of treachery that deserves to be punished. Absalom planned and he plotted and it was sinful every step of the way. And at the same time, at the same time, the divine perspective looks at this rebellion and sees the fulfillment of God's Word. Do you remember it, friends? Chapter 12, verse 11. In response to David's sin with Bathsheba, the Lord said, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Well, what has happened here in chapter 15? Evil has arisen against David from within his own house. Or to say it another way, God has fulfilled His Word. No matter the consequences. God has fulfilled His Word, even though that fulfillment brings discipline and correction in the life of God's people. God keeps His Word, no matter the consequences. And therein lies the takeaway for us, friends. David's experience here should cause us to take seriously not only the promises of God's Word, but also the warnings and the exhortations. We, we love the truthfulness of Scripture when it comes to God's promises, and rightfully so. What a delight it is to know that God will finish the good work He has begun in us. Amen? It's a delight to know that. 
But the truthfulness of Scripture goes the other way too. It also applies to the Bible's warnings. It also applies to the Bible's exhortations. And therefore, as much as we love Philippians 1.6, we need to hear words like this too. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. What are you sowing? We need to listen to Jesus when He says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. What careless words have you spoken this week? And we should be sobered when the Bible tells us to take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. How vigilant are you against unbelief? If you love Philippians 1.6, then you need to listen to those too. Friends, I'm not trying to scare us into a frightened, cowering posture before God. But I do hope I do sincerely hope to stir up in each of us this morning an appropriate fear of the Lord. The recognition that the holy God keeps His Word, both His promises and His warnings. All of it is true. His promises are sweet. And His warnings are for your good as well. So in an unexpected way, Absalom and his rebellion serves us. Absalom serves us because he confirms yet again the truthfulness of God's Word. God keeps His Word no matter what. So we should listen. As we continue on in the passage, we see it's time for David to run. Verses 13-17 to describe how David heard the news and there was really only one choice. If David remained in Jerusalem, then he would put the entire city at risk. And therefore, the king puts his people ahead of himself. David flees the capital and begins his descent down into the valley. This is, of course, a difficult moment for David. But mercifully, David doesn't face this difficult moment alone. I'm sure you heard it when we read three times along the way, David encounters friends people who remain devoted to Him. These meetings occur in verses 18-37 to of chapter 15, and it's here we see the second step in David's flight. The faithfulness of God's servant renewed. The faithfulness of God's servant renewed. Again, David meets three groups of people as he goes. He actually meets five groups of people, but the other two are not friendly, so we'll deal with those in a minute. He meets three friendly groups of people as he goes. And each group gives us a different perspective on how David's faith is being renewed. Notice with me how it works out in the passage. First of all, David's faith feeds on the kindness of God. In verse 18, David sees that the Cherethites and the Pelethites and the Gittites are all marching out of the city with him. Understand, friends, these are all foreigners. These are Gentiles. These are not Israelites. But they have a personal connection to the king of Israel. What's more, the Cherethites and the Pelethites were David's personal bodyguards. So notice what David has done. He's leaving behind the protection of the capital, and yet as he goes, God meets him on the outskirts of the city and says, here, I'm going to give you protection. God provides what it appears that David is losing. 
This provision is especially clear in the words of Ittai the Gittite. He's probably a Philistine. The best we can tell. He's probably a Philistine. He appears in verse 19. At first, David encourages him to stay behind in Jerusalem. Ittai has only recently come into David's service. So he's under no obligation to go. David says, just stay here. And yet, what does Ittai say? Verse 21, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. Don't miss that kindness, friends. This is David's most difficult hour. Everyone, it seems, is turning on him. So what does God do? Quite simply, God sends David a friend. But not just any friend. A friend who says, I'm not leaving. Wherever you go, I'll go. If you die, I'm dying. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going with you. Think of the strength this would give to David's faith. He's literally leaving everything behind. And here's a tangible reason to trust the Lord. Here is a flesh and blood message from God saying to David, don't be afraid. The Lord will go with you into the valley. The Lord will give you what you need. We all need those kinds of friends, don't we? Amen. But perhaps we should also remember this morning that we're all called to be that kind of friend. A friend who stands in the gap and says, I'm not running. Everybody's turning on you. I'm not running. Let my presence encourage your faith. David feeds on the kindness of God. The king's flight continues and we see David's faith rests in the hand of God. Notice verse 24. Abiathar and Zadok show up. Again, David is not alone. The priests of the Lord stand with him. But notice also what Zadok brings. He brings the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was thought to have power. And it was sometimes brought into battle in hopes that God would use it to fight. So Zadok brings the Ark. And maybe Zadok thinks that the Ark will deliver them from Absalom if they get into a tight spot. But David will have none of that. He sends the Ark back into the city along with the priests. And then notice David's reason, verse 25. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, He will bring me back and let me see both it and His dwelling place. You see, David's confidence is not in the ark. David's confidence is not in any religious symbol. David's confidence is in the Lord God. He doesn't seek to manipulate God. He's not trying to twist God's arm, so to speak. Instead, by faith, David is content for God to do whatever he will because in faith, David is assured that whatever God wills, it is good. In fact, notice how clearly David expresses this confidence. Verse 26. This is an astonishing statement. But if the Lord says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. Please don't misunderstand that statement, friends. David is not throwing up his hands in resignation. Faith is not fatalism. No, faith is confidence in the goodness and wisdom of God. David doesn't understand anything that's going on, yet he knows that God is good and he's content to just be there in who God is. Brothers and sisters, I pray this encourages you. Biblical faith does not require you to have all of the answers or even understand all that is happening. 
Instead, biblical faith can be the simple, confident acknowledgement that your life rests in God's hands, come what may. Come what may. That's faith. Trusting God to do what He will do. I mean, David could have trusted in the ark. He could have taken the ark and used it. It would have gone badly. But he could have taken the ark. He could have trusted in some symbol. But instead, David trusts only in the Lord. He's walking by faith. Do you see it? His faith rests in the hand of God for the first time perhaps since chapter 10. The king is trusting in the Lord. His faith rests in the hand of God. Finally, David's faith acts with confidence in God. It feeds on the kindness of God. He rests in the hand of God. And now David's faith acts with confidence in God. Verse 31 delivers more bad news for David. Ahithophel, David's trusted counselor, has joined up with Absalom. This is not good. Ahithophel is shrewd and smart, but now he's using those gifts to serve David's enemy. And in response, all David can do... Remember, he's on the run. He's fleeing. If Absalom gets to Jerusalem before David leaves, everybody dies. So David is running. And all he can do is just throw up a quick prayer. O Lord, verse 31, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Again, David places his trust in the Lord. But then notice what happens next. Verse 32. I, lo- I love this turn. David meets Hushai, the archite. And if you're thinking, who's that? We don't know. This is the first time we meet him. Hushai, the archite. Hushai is also David's counselor and his friend. But when this friend arrives, David sees an opportunity. Notice verse 34. He's talking to Hushai. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you, you, Hushai, will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Friends, do you see what David sees? Hushai is the answer to David's prayer. Hushai is the Lord's provision. David asked God to frustrate the counsel of Ahithophel, and no sooner than David had said, Amen, Hushai walks up and David says, This is it. This is the answer. This is what I'm looking for. Hushai is going to be a double agent. It, just don't worry about the fact that he's deceiving Absalom. Rebels get deceived, that's what they deserve. Hushai is going to be a double agent. Verses 35 to 37 give you the details, and it's brilliant. David sets up this chain of communication from Absalom to Hushai, from Hushai to the priest, to the priest to their sons, and then on to David. He's not alone. He's not in the silence. Hushai will go back to David, uh, go back to Jerusalem, and together with the priests, David's friends will work against Ahithophel, and it will, it'll, it'll, it will be successful, as we're going to see. But I, what I want you to notice today is that David both prays and acts. He prays and he acts. Verse 31, he prays. Verse 32, he makes a plan. We know that prayer is an exercise of faith, but so is David's acting. So is David's planning. Friends, this is a helpful reminder that faith in God is not passive, but active and engaged. God has given you a mind and He wants you to use it. By all means, pray and ask for the Lord to do what He's going to do and then take the gifts that God has given you and put together a plan and act on it. I mean, to be sure, we should always make our plans in dependence on God and we should always submit our plan to the will of God. But at the end of the day, thinking and planning and taking action are just as much an exercise of faith as praying and asking God to do something. 
In fact, it's often through the action of faith that God answers the prayer of faith. Let me tell you a story. I have a friend of mine. His family for years has been praying for financial provision. And just recently, in the last couple of months or so, this friend has received a raise so that he's making more money than he used to make. Okay? Now, you could say that he's just going to keep continuing to pray for God to provide what he needs. Or you could view the raise as the opportunity to put together a smart budget that enables him to save and put money in the bank and therefore trust God. Now, money dropping into the mailbox in an envelope in answer to prayer, we, we, we would clearly see that as God's provision. But what about just a regular everyday pay raise that enables you to plan better and budget better? You see what I'm saying? You pray and you plan. You pray and you take action. Both of them are exercises of faith. One is not more spiritual than the other. That's what I want you to see. Verse 31, David prays. Verse 32, David acts. It's through the action of faith often that God answers the prayer of faith. That's what we see here with David the king. In faith, David acts with confidence in God. I love how this section of the passage ends. Look at at verse 37. And catch the glimmer of hope in the midst of David's hardship. Verse 37, so Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. It's only a glimmer, but let's not miss it. The rebellious son rides into town thinking he has all the power, but what he doesn't know is that David still has friends. And those friends have helped renew David's faith in the Lord. And so we come to the final step in David's flight. In verses 1-14 to of chapter 16, we see the faithfulness of God's servant tested. The faithfulness of God's servant tested. David meets some more people in chapter 16. Chapter 15, he met friends. Chapter 16, he meets two less than friendly people. These men will test David's trust in the Lord. Notice with me how David responds to these unsavory characters. The first is Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth. You remember Mephibosheth, right? He's the crippled son of Jonathan whom David promised to care for back in chapter 9. Well, here in chapter 16, Mephibosheth's servant, Ziba, slanders his master. Ziba brings David all these provisions. It's just overflowing with stuff. And he tells the king that Mephibosheth has turned on him. Look at verse 3, chapter 16. Ziba said to the king, Behold, Mephibosheth remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will give back the kingdom to my father. Now, we're going to learn in chapter 19 that Ziba is very likely lying. He's making this up. Mephibosheth remains loyal to David to the end of his life. So why would Ziba lie? Well, the simplest answer is the most likely. Ziba is an opportunistic, manipulative scoundrel. Remember, Mephibosheth is crippled. So he can't flee Jerusalem. He's homebound. He can't get up and run with David. He's stuck at home. And Ziba thinks, "Ah, here's my opportunity. Here's the door opening for me. And he sees a chance to get ahead. And all he has to do is capitalize on David's distress. And indeed, for a time, that's what happens. David acts quickly. We could probably say rashly. And he gives Ziba Mephibosheth's 
land. But that won't be the final decision. There's more to come, but you're just going to have to wait until chapter 19 to figure out what happens to Ziba. If he bothers you, then come back in a few weeks and you'll see what happens to him. It's not good. It's the last character on David's flight that's the worst of all, Shimei. You know Shimei is bad because he belongs to the house of Saul. Shimei is convinced that David's day has finally come. You see it there in verses 5 and 6. He stands by the road and he curses David continually. Now understand, Shimei is not merely calling David bad names. Now it's much worse than that. Shimei is declaring that David is cut off from God. That's what cursing means here. God has cut you off. So, Shimei sees all the bad stuff happening to David, and he interprets it as God's decision to give David what he deserves. I mean, look at verse 7, and you'll get a sense of this man's curse. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood." Now, on one hand, you have to admit that Shimei's words have a hint of truth, right? God is disciplining David for his sin. But on the other hand, Shimei's curse is entirely wrong. David has not shed any blood from anyone in the house of Saul. I mean, think back through David's life. He's not done anything wrong to the house of Saul. He didn't kill Saul, though he had the chance to do so. He honored his covenant with Jonathan, even though nobody would have known if he didn't. And he even punished the people who did kill members of Saul's family. For his entire life, David has dealt righteously with the house of Saul. So Shimei's curse is entirely undeserved. And Abishai, one of David's commanders, has had enough. Notice verse 9. Abishai is Joab's brother, and he's as ruthless as Joab. Verse 9, Abishai has a solution. Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go off, let me go over and take off his head. Alright. In Abishai's view, a little violence will go a long way. One swift sword swipe, and Shimmy's mouth will be shut. But here's the key part. David incredibly intervenes, and he does so for a striking reason. Look at verse 10. David says, if he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, who then shall say, why have you done so? Friends, consider the humility of that statement. David is willing to consider that Shimei's curse is indeed part of God's discipline on his life. David's at least willing to consider that. Instead of taking vengeance for himself, David is content to leave the matter in the Lord's hands. In fact, notice verse 12. Verse 12, I think, is a high point in the passage. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for His cursing today. Friends, there it is. This is the David we know. This is the David who walks uprightly before the Lord. This is the David who, when given the opportunity to do wickedness, restrains himself and humbly places his life in God's hands. This is the David we know. David's faith has been renewed by God's grace. And now that renewed faith has been tested through these scoundrels 
and found to be genuine. But here's the key, friends. Here's the point that I'm trying to make with the entire sermon. Where did God do this good work in David's life? Where has this renewal and strengthening taken place? Not in the luxury and ease of the Jerusalem palace, but in the distress and difficulty of the valley. That's where. It's with curses raining down on his head that David again finds the voice to trust God. And I'll contend that it could only have happened in the valley. And so, brothers and sisters, the old Puritans were right. God does often bring us down into the valley where we live in the depths, but see Him in the heights. That's been the testimony we've seen of David's life here in this passage. And I pray His testimony will be an encouragement to you the next time you find yourself living in the depths of the valley. Perhaps you're there today. Perhaps you're living in the depths today. If so, I pray nothing else that this sermon will have reminded you that those valleys are not signs that God has abandoned you. Far from it. It could very well be that God is using that valley to show you something that without which you would never have seen. It could very well be that God is using that valley to discipline, to train, and ultimately to strengthen your faith in His goodness. There's some things you just can't learn on the mountaintop. You've got to go down deep before you can see them. And I pray that that would be an encouragement to you today, whatever it is that you face. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your faithfulness and Your goodness and Your